welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topic we'll be covering today is acute pancreatitis. So what is pancreatitis? Pancreatitis is an inflammatory condition of the pancreas that can result in local injury, systemic inflammatory response syndrome, and organ failure. It's a pretty common condition, and anyone who's worked as a surgical registrar has probably seen pancreatitis multiple times. I'm sure you're aware that it is a spectrum of disease, from mild disease to very severe disease, and the mortality from acute pancreatitis is somewhere between 2 and 4%. So what causes pancreatitis? I know in medical school everyone remembered the GET SMASHED UP acronym for remembering the causes of pancreatitis, but I could never remember what all the letters stood for. I like to group the causes in the etiology of what it's actually doing to the pancreas. So there's obstruction, which can be by gallstones or a benign or malignant stricture. There's toxins, such as alcohol, as well as infections. So some viral and bacterial infections can cause pancreatitis. There's metabolic problems, including hypertriglyceridemia and hypercalcemia. There's genetic pancreatitis, and this includes hereditary pancreatitis, which is an autosomally inherited mutation in the PRSS1 gene, and also cystic fibrosis or a congenital abnormality in the pancreas, such as pancreatic divism, can lead to pancreatitis. There's trauma to the pancreas, which can cause pancreatitis. Iatrogenic causes, such as ERCP and drugs. Inflammatory pancreatitis, so this is IgG4-related disease or ischemia or hyperperfusion. Physiological, such as sphincter of Oddi dysfunction. And idiopathic pancreatitis, where the cause isn't found even after multiple investigations. I was going to say that we don't have scorpions in Australia, so I wasn't going to list that as a potential differential But I've just Googled it and it turns out we do have scorpions in Australia, although there has never been a death in Australia from scorpion sting. So I guess we better leave that on the list of potential causes for pancreatitis. So the pathophysiology of pancreatitis is something that they love to ask in the exam. There are thought to be three main ways that pancreatitis gets set off. The first of these is pancreatic duct obstruction. And gallstones or sludge, as well as alcohol, are thought to commence pancreatitis through this pathway. So in gallstones, impaction of sludge or a stone in the bile duct raises the pancreatic duct pressure and occludes pancreatic outflow. And this causes an accumulation of the pancreatic fluid in the gland. And in alcoholic pancreatitis, it's thought that the alcohol increases the protein viscosity within the small ducts leading to segmental obstruction. And in both of these pathways, this then leads to co-localization of proenzymes and the intracellular lysosomal enzymes, which mix and lead to activation of the pancreatitis pathway. The second potential mechanism is primary injury to the acinar cells, and it's thought that this is 
what happens in viral pancreatitis, drugs and trauma, ischemia and shock, and that the damage to sinai basically leak pancreatic enzymes. And the last pathway is with defective intracellular transport of proenzymes, and this happens in cystic fibrosis. So basically the acinocells cells can't package the digestive enzymes very well, and so then the digestive enzymes get exposed to the proenzymes and that activates the um, pancreatitis in the gland. Before I go on to the next steps of the pathophysiology, I found it really helpful to go through the kind of normal pancreatic functions so I could understand what all of these different words meant. So basically, the pancreas creates a number of different digestive enzymes, and it packages these into what's called zymogens. And these are the proenzymes for all of these digestive enzymes, basically. And so then when you eat a meal, there's a number of signaling mechanisms that encourage the acina cells to release these zymogen granules into the duct, and then they travel down to the small bowel where these proenzymes are activated by trypsin, and then that means that then the proenzymes are made into their active form and can help to digest the food. So in pancreatitis, no matter which of those three pathways we talked about, Basically, what happens is that the cellular injury leads to mixing of the zymogen granules that have the proenzymes of the digestive enzymes in them with lysosomes. And also there's premature activation of trypsin from trypsinogen, and they all mix, which basically activates these zymogen proenzymes into the active form of the enzymes within the gland. And then this leads to autodigestion of the pancreatic tissue and that further activates and mixes all of these things. You get further activation of all of those different enzymes. And this leads to the local damage with edema, necrosis and hemorrhage within the actual gland itself. But on top of that, the inflammation actually activates neutrophils and these neutrophils then also join the party and release a whole heap of superoxides and other proteolytic enzymes and they also send signaling to attract macrophages to the area that are activated and they create more of these inflammatory cytokines such as TNF-alpha, interleukin-6 and interleukin-8 and interleukin-1 that also increase that local response and then these leak into the system and contribute to the uh, systemic inflammatory response. All of these inflammatory mediators also activate the complement and coagulation pathways, which then leads to small vessel thrombosis and can cause further necrosis within the pancreas and make the whole thing even worse. The other side effects of this whole process is that it can lead to gastrointestinal lining damage, which can lead to bacterial translocation, and it can also lead to acute respiratory distress syndrome, and the endothelial damage affects the whole body, so you get leaky capillaries, edema, pleural effusions, um, and hypotension, which can lead to renal failure as well. So basically, it's just a cascade of events starting from this initial activation or premature activation of trypsin in the pancreas and mixing of the pancreatic enzymes and the zymogen proenzyme granules. Given we're on a roll with our pathophysiology, I'll take a little segue into talking about systemic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS. 
The definition of SIRS is a clinical response to a non-specific insult. So it can be infectious or non-infectious. And in pancreatitis, obviously, it's non-infectious. With two or more of the following, either a heart rate more than 90, abnormal white cell count, either less than 4 or greater than 12, a respiratory rate more than 20, and a temperature more than 38 or less than 36. And it's considered a dysregulated inflammatory response to an injury or infection. In pancreatitis, the SIRS is basically set off by all of the cytokines that are released, so TNF-alpha, interleukin-1, 6, and 8, which usually basically try to open up the circulation and improve a local response. But if there's no homeostasis and these cytokines aren't brought back into control, then you get this um, significant systemic reaction that occurs due to these cytokines. And that's what we're seeing in pancreatitis. What is the diagnostic criteria for pancreatitis? So pancreatitis needs to be two of the following three criteria. The first is abdominal pain that's consistent with the disease. So typically patients will present with acute onset, epigastric pain, and often it radiates to the back. The second criteria is a elevated serum lipase or amylase, and it should be three times the upper limit of normal. And the third criteria is characteristic findings from abdominal imaging. So typically a CT scan of the abdomen with contrast enhancement will demonstrate stranding around the pancreas and can demonstrate a area of pancreatic necrosis or non-enhancement. So it's important there that in mild disease, if a patient's presenting with epigastric pain and a elevated lipase more than three times the upper limit of normal, you don't actually need a CT scan to confirm the diagnosis. We'll talk a little bit later about when a CT scan may be indicated. So once pancreatitis has been diagnosed, further investigations should focus around establishing the cause of the pancreatitis and assessing the severity of the pancreatitis, which is going to help guide your management. So in terms of trying to establish the cause of pancreatitis, the first thing is to take a thorough history. So you want to ask the patient about alcohol use, previous episodes of pancreatitis, histories that might suggest biliary colic or gallstones, known hyperlipidemia, a family history of hypertriglyceridemia, pancreatic trauma, recent ERCP, any new medications and what medications they're taking, and family history of pancreatitis. In terms of investigations, you want to send some blood tests, including full blood count, UEC, CMP looking at calcium, liver function tests, especially to see whether there's any evidence of uh, potential biliary pathology. You want to get a blood glucose level and a VBG to look at their acid base status. And other tests you could consider doing is fasting triglyceride levels, looking for hypertriglyceridemia as a cause, an IgG4 level, especially in recurrent acute pancreatitis with no other cause found. You may need to send a LDH level, especially if you're going to be using some of the criteria we'll be talking about in a minute. 
And in young patients less than 30 years old with no evident cause of the pancreatitis and a family history of pancreatic disease, you may want to consider genetic testing for the PRSS1 mutation. I also organize an ultrasound for these patients in order to look for evidence of gallstones. The next thing to think about with pancreatitis is how unwell the patient is or the severity of their disease. So on examination, you want to have a look at the patient's observations and you're looking for evidence of a SERS response. To remind ourselves, the clinical features of a SERS response are heart rate more than 90, respiratory rate more than 20, or temperature greater than 38 or less than 36. The last criteria was an abnormal white cell count, which you'll obviously see on the blood tests, not clinically. Hypotension is also a sign of severe pancreatitis. On examination of the abdomen, you want to palpate for abdominal tenderness or guarding. You want to have a look for some of the more uncommon signs, but those that are associated with severe necrotizing pancreatitis. And this includes a Cullen sign, which is a bluish discoloration around the umbilicus resulting from hemoperitoneum, a gray Turner sign, which is discoloration along the flanks from retroperitoneal blood, or erythematous skin nodules, which can result from focal subcutaneous fat necrosis. You may also see evidence of pancreatic head edema or the cause of pancreatitis being biliary obstruction if the patient is jaundiced. There are a number of different tools to assess the severity of pancreatitis. I think for the exam, you probably need to know at least one of these. They include the Apache score, the modified Glasgow criteria, the combined International Association of Pancreatology and American Pancreatic Association guidelines, Ranson score, or the revised Atlanta classification, severity classification. I'll talk a little bit about these and about the ones that I think I'll remember for the exam. The Apache score is a pretty complex scoring system that stands for Acute Physiology and Chronic Health Evaluation, and it's basically been used in ICU to predict the risk of death and severe disease, and it's usually done within the first 24 hours of admission. The Apache score considers a number of clinical criteria, as well as takes into account the patient's age, chronic health conditions, and their admission diagnosis, at least in the most recent permutation of the Apache score, and gives you an estimated mortality rate and length of stay in the ICU. It's pretty complex. I don't think this is the one that I'm going to remember. The next one I mentioned is the modified Glasgow criteria. And in this one, a score of greater than or equal to three is associated with a higher risk of morbidity and mortality from pancreatitis. And I remember this scoring system with the mnemonic of pancreas. So P is for PaO2 if it's less than 60 millimeters of mercury. A is for age, more than 55. N is for neutrophils, raised more than 15. C is for calcium if it's less than 2. R is for raised renal urea, more than 16. E is for elevated liver enzymes, so an AST or ALT more than 200 or an LDH more than 600. A is for albumin if it's less than 32. And S is for sugar, so if the BSL is greater than 10. And if you have three or more of those, then the patient's at risk of having severe pancreatitis. 
The third scoring system is the Ranson criteria. I don't really use the Ranson criteria because it takes 48 hours to determine whether or not the patient fits the criteria for severe pancreatitis. And often you want to have predicted this earlier. It basically looks at 11 different parameters and five of these are assessed on admission and then six of them are assessed at 48 hours after admission. And one point is given for each positive parameter for a maximum score of 11. And the higher the number is, the higher the risk of mortality. The criteria or the things that are looked at include age, white blood cell count, glucose, AST, LDH, calcium, hematocrit, oxygen PaO2, urea, base deficit, and fluid sequestration. The IAP slash APA guidelines is a management guideline that came out in 2013. And I quite like this one because their severity classification is basically just the presence of SIRS and whether it persists after 48 hours. They found that the presence of SIRS and persistent SIRS at 48 hours was strongly associated with multi-organ failure and mortality in acute pancreatitis. And they commented that it was very easy to assess and also people were familiar with it. So it was a nice, simple determinant of severity for pancreatitis. They do say, though, to try to combine SIRS with a three-dimensional assessment of the patient. So you need to also consider the patient's risk factors such as age, comorbidities, and body mass index, as well as lab findings such as an elevated creatinine or rising hematocrit, as well as assessment of SIRS at presentation and reassessment for persistent SIRS at 48 hours. The last severity assessment tool that I think is used more and more now, at least in my institution, is the Revised Atlanta Classification. And this has a section on severity. It splits the severity of pancreatitis up into three groups. And this is mild acute pancreatitis, moderately severe acute pancreatitis, and severe acute pancreatitis. So mild acute pancreatitis is where the patient has no organ failure or local or systemic complications. And mild acute pancreatitis is the majority of pancreatitis where it's self-limiting, lasts a few days and patients get better. Moderately severe acute pancreatitis is where there's transient organ failure that lasts less than 48 hours or patient has local complications such as peripancreatic fluid collections or pancreatic necrosis, or there's systemic complications such as an exacerbation of pre-existing disease. And severe acute pancreatitis is where there's persistent organ failure after 48 hours. These patients will often have one or more local complications as well, and most of these patients will have SIRS in the early phase. So now that I've confused you with 6,000 types of assessments for the severity of pancreatitis, let's move on to talking about the classification of pancreatitis. And I like using the revised Atlanta classification from 2012. I think this is what's mostly used nowadays that splits pancreatitis into two subtypes. And this is interstitial edematous pancreatitis and necrotizing pancreatitis. 
Splitting pancreatitis up into these two different types is usually done by the CT appearance of the pancreas. So for interstitial edematous pancreatitis, this is diffuse or localized pancreatic enlargement, which is usually secondary to the edema in the pancreas. And the pancreas should enhance homogeneously, and there may be peripancreatic fat stranding. Necrotizing pancreatitis on CT usually shows necrosis of the pancreatic parenchyma, and this is why you need a contrast-enhanced CT, because normal pancreas will light up and pancreatic necrosis won't. And you may see changes with impaired pancreatic perfusion that evolve over a few days. So early on, it just may be patchy parenchymal enhancement, and after one week, there may be a whole area of non-enhancement. I will talk a little bit more about local pancreatitis complications later in this podcast, but I think it's worth mentioning here that the revised Atlanta classification introduced new terminology for fluid collections associated with acute pancreatitis. So the fluid collections that you see around the pancreas have to do with what type of pancreatitis it is, and also the time frame from the diagnosis of pancreatitis. So for interstitial edematous pancreatitis, fluid seen around the pancreas within the first four weeks is called an acute peripancreatic fluid collection. And after four weeks, once it's encapsulated, it's called a pseudocyst. For fluid collections around a person with necrotizing pancreatitis, in the first four weeks, it's called an acute necrotic collection. And after four weeks, once it's encapsulated, it's called walled-off necrosis. And it's important to note that both types of necrotizing pancreatitis collections can either be sterile or infected. And if there's gas in them, that's probably the best feature on imaging, at least, to suggest that it's infected. So although we diagnose the type of pancreatitis based on the CT, the majority of patients with mild acute pancreatitis, as I mentioned earlier, won't have a CT scan. Some of the indications for CT imaging in acute pancreatitis include if the diagnosis of pancreatitis is uncertain. So remember, you need two of the three. So if they have pain but a normal lipase, you may do a CT scan or vice versa. For patients with a severe episode of clinical pancreatitis, you may want to do a CT scan to rule out complications of acute pancreatitis and also to confirm the severity and the classification or type of pancreatitis that you're dealing with. Patients who fail to improve after 72 hours of conservative treatment should also get a CT and patients who have an acute change in their clinical status, so if they're tracking along pretty well and they develop new fevers or pain or shock, then that would be an indication for a CT. I don't know if we'd need to know this, but there is a scoring system for severity of pancreatitis based on the CT appearance of the pancreatitis. And this is called the CT severity index. And the CT severity index sums up two scores. The first of these is the Balthazar score, which grades pancreatitis from A to E. And the second is the pancreatic necrosis score, which is basically the percentage of the pancreas that looks dead on the CT scan. So the Balthazar score basically grades from A to E pancreatitis. So A is a normal pancreas. 
B is enlargement of the pancreas. C is inflammatory changes in the pancreas and peripancreatic fat. D is an ill-defined single peripancreatic fluid collection. And E is two or more poorly defined peripancreatic fluid collections. And then pancreatic necrosis is none, less than 30%, between 30 and 50%, or more than 50%. Each of these gradings for the Balthazar score and the pancreatic necrosis are allocated a number. And the sum of these two numbers basically tells you whether or not the CT appearance is consistent with mild, moderate, or severe pancreatitis. So what are some of the complications of pancreatitis? We've already alluded to the fact that patients can get very unwell and develop systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which can lead to multi-organ dysfunction syndrome and death. Other complications include local complications, and these can be early or late. Early Local complications include the fluid collections that we've already talked about, so a acute peripancreatic fluid collection or acute necrotic collection. Patients can also develop pancreatic complications such as necrosis or infected necrosis, but usually this doesn't develop until at least a week after the diagnosis of pancreatitis. Pancreatitis can lead to extrapancreatic vascular complications because of the inflammation and endothelial damage. So patients can develop pseudoaneurysms of the splenic artery, for example, that can rupture, hemorrhage as a response to that or hemorrhage from the pancreas itself, and can also develop splenic or portal vein thrombosis and occlusion. Extrapancreatic complications from the gastrointestinal tract can also occur. So the inflammation in the stomach and duodenum can cause ulceration, so these patients should be put on a PPI. Patients can also develop so much edema that they can get a gastric outlet obstruction picture, and this can also happen due to the mass effect from collections. Patients can also develop strictures in the bile duct or in the duodenum due to the inflammation, and they can also get infarction of the transverse colon most commonly because of thrombosis of the transverse mesocolic vessels because obviously the transverse mesocolon is closely related to the pancreas. Other pancreatic complications include disconnected duct syndrome where basically the pancreatic necrosis leads to a transection or disruption in the pancreatic duct and this can lead to um, collections of pancreatic fluid around the pancreas. Late complications of pancreatitis include development of pseudocysts or walled-off necrosis which remember is what happens after four weeks. You can get pancreatic ascites or pancreaticopleural fistulas, and you can get pancreaticocutaneous, and I've also seen pancreaticoretroperitoneal fistulas. The damage to the pancreas can cause pancreatic insufficiency, and this can be both exocrine, requiring creon replacement, and also cause diabetes. And chronic pancreatitis or recurrent episodes of pancreatitis is a risk factor for the development of pancreatic adenocarcinoma. So let's talk about the management of pancreatitis. 
Initial management should be based around the CRISP principles with systematic assessment and resuscitation of airway, breathing and circulation. You should try and risk stratify the patient and patients who are high risk or have evidence of severe pancreatitis, they should be admitted to an intensive care or high dependency unit wherever possible. So remembering the severity assessments we just talked about, anyone with evidence of SIRS or who has evidence of organ failure as defined by the revised Atlanta classification should be considered a high-risk patient and talk to ICU. Other considerations of patients who are elderly, obese, who don't have a good response to fluid resuscitation uh, or who have other evidence of severe disease should also be managed in a HTU or ICU setting as well. Fluid resuscitation is really important. Patients should be resuscitated with CSL or Hartman's solution. And the initial guide for how fast to run the fluids is between 5 to 10 milliliters per kilogram per hour. And this should be continued until goal-directed therapy goals are reached. And so the types of goals that you want to be looking to achieve are heart rate less than 120, MAP between 65 and 85, a urinary output between 0.5 and 1 mil per kilogram per hour, and seeing an improvement in the hematocrit. All patients should have a strict fluid balance and monitoring and replacement of their electrolytes, as well as monitoring of their blood sugar levels. A catheter should also be placed in order to monitor the urine output, especially in patients with moderately severe disease or severe disease. Patients also need analgesia and the acute pain service may need to be involved. And also patients should be given DVT prophylaxis as they're at high risk of developing clots due to the systemic inflammatory response to pancreatitis. So sequential compression stockings and clexane prophylactic dosing should be charted. Nutrition is an important consideration in pancreatitis. In patients who have mild pancreatitis, early oral nutrition should be started as tolerated by the patient. In my institution now, we would let the patient have diet as tolerated from admission. Enteral nutrition maintains the gut mucosal barrier and reduces the risk of bacterial translocation and the development of secondary infections. Patients with severe acute pancreatitis may need more nutritional support. Often we see a picture where the patient develops a gastroparesis or an ileus-type presentation where they get slowed down of the gastrointestinal tract and also a lot of third spacing into the retroperitoneum that can um, make it difficult for them to maintain their oral intake. Enteral tube feeding is the primary therapy that should be started in these patients, even if initially it's just trickle feed, again to try and maintain that gut mucosal barrier. It's also been shown that delaying feeding in severe pancreatitis increases the risk of per infected peripancreatic necrosis and um, increases the need for interventions for necrotizing pancreatitis, as well as increases the risk of multi-organ failure. So it's really important to think about feeding and think about it early. In patients who aren't able to tolerate an increase in their enteral feeds, you may need to supplement their feeds with total parenteral nutrition. But even in those settings, often we'll continue the trickle feeds to try to maintain that gut mucosal barrier. 
The next management consideration is when ERCP is indicated in the management of gallstone pancreatitis. This is slightly controversial. In general, people agree that ERCP is recommended early within the first 24 hours in the setting of pancreatitis and cholangitis. I think it can be quite difficult to diagnose cholangitis in the setting of severe pancreatitis because patients may have fevers because of the pancreatitis and not necessarily because of infection. But in a recent shoot with one of the specialists, they said you'll know if the patient has cholangitis because they are really, really unwell, their bilirubin's increasing, and they have really high temperatures. So if you think that the patient has cholangitis, it's probably worth discussing with a specialist about ERCP. The controversy is around whether or not ERCP is indicated in biliary pancreatitis where there's CBD obstruction, so not cholangitis but a big stone in the bile duct. And it's probably indicated in these patients, but you wouldn't rush into it. So it's not something that needs to be done in the first 24 hours. And often if you're suspicious that there is cholelithiasis, these patients would usually get further ductal imaging prior to going straight to ERCP, so usually something like an MRCP, because pancreatitis itself and inflammation of the head of the pancreas can cause compression on the bile duct in the head of the pancreas and cause a biliary obstruction picture. So typically we do further investigations before going straight to ERCP. ERCP is not indicated in pancreatitis where there's no evidence of cholelithiasis. So if a patient has gallstones and you think that's the cause of the pancreatitis, but there's no evidence that they're in the duct, then you don't need to do an ERCP. And when should you do a lap coli for somebody who has gallstone pancreatitis? Lap coli should be performed during the index admission for patients who have mild pancreatitis. If patients have severe pancreatitis and peripancreatic collections, then the cholecystectomy should be delayed until either the collections resolve or after six weeks, at which point it's thought to be safe to do the cholecystectomy. For patients who have pancreatitis but no known cause, so you've done all of the investigations and you can't identify a cause for their pancreatitis, then these patients are considered to have idiopathic pancreatitis. And for these patients, you still want to have a little bit of a harder look for potential gallstones. So this includes repeating the ultrasound as the sensitivity for picking up gallstones is increased with two ultrasounds instead of one. And after you've repeated the ultrasound, you then consider a MRCP or an EUS looking for microlithiasis and also to rule out other things such as small tumors or an area of autoimmune pancreatitis. And the other interesting thing is that in patients with idiopathic pancreatitis, a prophylactic cholecystectomy results in a 30% reduction in the rates of recurrent pancreatitis. And one of the surgeons I work with says, if you have a look at the GGT and the ALP on the day of admission, if it's elevated, so sort of above 300 or so, then you might consider taking out the gallbladder because maybe that indicates that there's been microlithiasis or a past stone that you just haven't been able to pick up on subsequent investigation. Mm-hmm. 
For the next part of this episode, I wanted to spend some time talking about the potential complications of pancreatitis and how to approach management of these complications. The first one I'm going to start with is management of infected peripancreatic necrosis. So first thing to say is that antibiotics shouldn't be used as prophylaxis in patients with acute pancreatitis or sterile pancreatic necrosis. It doesn't reduce the likelihood of them developing infected pancreatic necrosis. Antibiotics should be used in pancreatitis for things such as cholangitis and other infections such as catheter-related, bacteremia, UTIs, and pneumonia. And Patients who develop infected pancreatic necrosis usually suspected because they deteriorate or fail to improve after a week or so of hospitalization. And these patients would fit the criteria for a repeat CT scan or a CT scan looking for gas in the peripancreatic collections. If infected peripancreatic necrosis is suspected, patients should be covered with broad-spectrum antibiotics, and usually this is something like meropenem, which I think is the suggested antibiotic in ETG. The next step is consideration of drainage of the infected necrotic collection. And there's a little bit of different opinions, and I think it depends a little bit on the surgeon and the institution as to the best method of drainage. At my institution, we do a lot of internal drainage with endoscopic ultrasound guidance. And the benefit of this is that you're avoiding a pancreatic fistula to the skin. But both options, I think either internal or radiologically guided, usually retroperitoneal drainage, are both options. And obviously, if the patient's really unwell, you just need to drain the sepsis. The other consideration is that some centres or some people think that you should wait at least four weeks to allow liquefaction of contents and a fibrous wall around the necrosis to develop prior to endoscopic uh, drainage of a collection. But in patients who are really unwell, that may not be possible. Um, So in those situations, a percutaneous or internal drain may need to be undertaken even though you're not at that four-week mark. Patients who develop this complication are often critically unwell in the intensive care unit, and these are the sorts of patients that are going to end up spending months and months in hospital with serial CT scans and serial interventions for the complications or collections or issues that they develop over the course of their admission. It's worth mentioning here the concept of the step-up approach, which was developed in response to the fact that the management of infected pancreatic necrosis used to be open necrosectomy and patients had a really, really poor outcome. So there was a randomized control trial done in 2010 and published in the New England Journal of Medicine where they compared a step-up approach or open necrosectomy for necrotizing pancreatitis. The step-up approach was percutaneous drainage, followed by, if necessary, upsizing the drains, and then followed by a minimally invasive retroperitoneal necrosectomy, and obviously that avoids laparotomy and open necrosectomy. And they found that the minimally invasive approach reduced the rate of major complications and death in patients with necrotizing pancreatitis and infected necrotic pancreatitis. 
And this basically showed that by using the most minimally invasive technique, you were avoiding the inflammatory response and the SERS response of the major operation. And they think that this is what contributed to um, improved outcomes in this group. So this might be an approach to talk about in the exam. Interestingly, in our curriculum for the operative nose, it talks about knowing how to do a laparoscopic and an open necrosectomy. I've never seen an open necrosectomy done, but through my readings, basically it involves a wide incision, so a laparotomy or bilateral subcostal incisions, mobilizing both colonic flexures to expose the retroperitoneum and entering into the lesser sac via the gastrocolic ligament. Any pus is aspirated, and then basically there is blunt finger dissection of any necrotic tissue and whatever necrotic tissue will come away with finger dissection is removed and if it won't come away then it's left and then wide drains are placed. Some people even talk about doing lavage so leaving big drains and continuously lavaging the area and often multiple relook laparotomies are required with further debridement of necrotic tissue And some people even leave a laparostomy or leave the abdomen open. The mortality with these procedures, as you can probably imagine, is pretty high, with the original series showing mortality rates of 24%. In terms of laparoscopic or minimally invasive necrosectomy, the group that did the trial in Nedjum about the step-up approach used a minimally invasive approach where they basically dilated the retroperitoneal drain tract for the drains that they had into the pancreatic necrosis and then used a urological rigid rod scope system to perform a minimally invasive necrosectomy. This could also be done with a rigid laparoscope as well, inserted into that peripancreatic area through the retroperitoneal approach. And basically then Irrigation and suction is used and combined with sort of nibbling away at the necrotic debris in order to try and remove the necrotic tissue. Endoscopic necrosectomy is another option where in a similar way to performing a cyst gastrotomy, a ultrasound is used on an endoscope and the area of necrosis entered via the gastrointestinal tract and then the tract is dilated and the necrotic pancreatic tissue is removed piecemeal using uh, endoscopic graspers. It also can allow washout of the cyst area or the necrotic area with the endoscope as well. Let's move on to talking about management of pseudocysts or Waldorf necrosis. Patients who have pseudocysts or Waldorf necrosis who are asymptomatic don't actually need any intervention done for these collections. As long as they're not having any symptoms, you can just leave them alone. Often they will be monitored with serial imaging to make sure that they do eventually uh, decrease in size. For patients that are symptomatic of a pseudocyst, these can be managed with open laparoscopic or endoscopic cyst gastrostomy or cyst enterostomy. Patients may complain of pressure effects such as early satiety or they may develop other pressure effects such as obstructive jaundice from biliary compression, bowel obstruction and pseudocysts can also rupture into the gut and bleed or they can erode into a vessel and that can cause hemorrhage into the cyst or hemoperitoneum. Pseudocysts can also get infected. 
Our curriculum talks about in our operative nose how to do a open laparoscopic and endoscopic cyst gastrostomy. The important thing to be aware of is that if you're going to do these procedures, you need to make sure that the pseudocyst has matured and that there is a nice fibrous capsule around the pseudocyst and that the contents of the pseudocyst are viscous enough that they're going to drain into the bowel lumen because if it's solid walled off necrosis, it's not going to drain even if you do open it up to the gastrointestinal lumen. So the purpose of all of these techniques is to drain the contents of the pseudocyst into the gastrointestinal tract. And the good thing about this is that you avoid making a fistula to the skin. Endoscopic cyst gastrostomy is what I've seen done most commonly. And this is done via a gastroscope and an endoscopic ultrasound. And essentially the endoscopist enters the stomach and identifies the loop of the gastrointestinal tract, whether that's the stomach, duodenum or proximal small bowel, if they can reach that, that is most closely adherent to the cyst. And they then basically puncture the wall of the organ in order to enter into the cyst and place stents between the cyst and the stomach or the cyst and the duodenum in order to allow drainage of the cyst into the gastrointestinal tract. Endoscopic ultrasound is important here, firstly to make sure that you are actually entering into the cyst if there's no intraluminal bulging to show you where the cyst is, and also it helps you to avoid any intervening vessels. There's different stents that can be used, including pigtail plastic stents, and multiple stents can be placed to try to keep the opening open. And even fully covered metal stents with little flanges on either side have also been used for this drainage procedure. Laparoscopic or open cyst gastrostomy are basically performed the same way, except one is laparoscopic and one is open. And there's two potential options. The first is an anterior approach and the second is a posterior approach. The anterior approach is easier, but it requires that the stomach is adherent to the cyst. After gaining safe access to the abdomen, either open or laparoscopically, the left lobe of the liver is retracted and this should expose the anterior surface of the stomach. And basically you perform an anterior gastrotomy, um, which is usually four to five centimetres long to expose the posterior gastric wall through the stomach. You then identify the pseudocyst, which you should be able to see as a bulge in the posterior wall of the stomach, or you can use a a needle and um, aspirate to identify the pseudocyst. You can also use an intraoperative ultrasound in order to verify the location and to make sure that there's no intervening blood vessels that you may injure as you're opening up the pseudocyst. A ligature or ultrasonic shears are then used to perform an incision on the posterior wall of the stomach, usually over four to six centimetres to enter into the pseudocyst. And it's important to send a biopsy of the pseudocyst wall. You then want to wash out the cavity and remove any solid debris with a blunt grasper and make sure there is adequate hemostasis in the pseudocyst. There are two options then. Either you can slide a linear stapler into the pseudocyst and kind of use it to create a diamond or a wedge-shaped connection between the pseudocyst and the back wall of the stomach. Or you can 
over-sew your cyst gastrotomy or the incision you've made into the pseudocyst with a running full thickness suture, which will help with hemostasis and then also ensures that that opening between the pseudocyst and the stomach will stay open. You then want to close the anterior gastrotomy with a running continuous suture and you can use an amental patch to reinforce that as well. The posterior approach is more difficult but might be used if the pseudocyst is related to the greater curve and not sort of right behind the stomach. Basically, you want to enter into the lesser sac by dividing the gastrocolic ligament, which can often be quite difficult because of the previous pancreatitis. And then once you've identified the pseudocyst and the greater curvature, you incise into the pseudocyst and then do an incision on the posterior gastric wall as well, and then slide a linear stapler into these in order to create your cyst gastrotomy. And then you have to close the common defect with either interrupted or running sutures. The other option is performing a laparoscopic cyst jejunostomy. This isn't in our operative nose, but it's just good to know that you can bring up a loop of jejunum and do a similar thing where you use a stapler to create a common wall with the cyst and the jejunum. Another complication that can happen in pancreatitis is the development of pseudoaneurysms. And these are most commonly in the splenic artery, but can happen in any of the visceral arteries around the pancreas. Patients may present with pain or with rupture of a pseudoaneurysm. The first line treatment for these nowadays is really angioembolization, so an endovascular technique to stop the bleeding. But if the patient is really, really unwell and unstable in the exam, they might be pushing you to an operative control of bleeding. So that's something to be aware of. But in my experience, all of these have been managed with endovascular coiling or gluing of the involved vessel. Another complication, if there hasn't been enough already, of pancreatitis includes portal or splenic vein thrombosis. You may suspect this if there's a marked rise in the platelet count and also if patients develop new abdominal pain. In my experience, we usually involve the hematology department in the setting of portal vein or splenic vein thrombosis with pancreatitis in order to gain advice about whether these patients should be anticoagulated. In the absence of contraindications to anticoagulation, often these patients are given a DOAC or warfarin, and I guess the aim is to try to achieve recanalization of the vein and reduce the risk of that patient developing varices in the future. And that's it for pancreatitis. I'd been putting off doing this episode because I really didn't want to have to go through all of the pathophysiology again, but it actually didn't end up being that painful. And I think it's probably important that I know it and that you know it pretty well for the exam as it seems to always come up in some part of the exam, whether it's a long question, asking about pathophysiology of sepsis or SERS, anatomy, nutritional management, antibiotics, it could come up in so many different ways. So it's a pretty high yield topic. I hope you learned something from today's episode. As usual, please leave me a review. Makes me really happy to read them. Subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating because it makes it easier for other people to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, 
send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at firstincision. Happy studying!